Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, July 12, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, returning after a week away, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald here as ever. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen, who will be gone for most of the week, uh, but is here today. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Um... So disheartening COVID numbers coming back, semi-disheartening. The disheartening fact is that we are having a surge in cases. It's not like a surge like anything before, the surges before. We're talking about doubling of numbers from you know around 10,000 to around 20,000 or a little higher. Um, but nonetheless, the Delta variant is biting. Um the reason it's only semi-disheartening is that the death toll remains very low. I mean, it's we're still you know around 200, which I don't want to sound bloodless, but is very low, uh, and and remains sort of like in the category of a bad flu uh, if it if it remains at this number. The fear, of course, is that it won't remain at this number. Uh, that the uh, infections uh, will beget new infections. And that just um, mutatis mutandis, the death rate will will rise, and that will of course start putting interesting cross pressures politically uh, on uh, from those who uh, believe that we uh, loosen restrictions too quickly and will want to, you know, will want to reimpose them uh, to protect everybody, particularly when uh schooling and other things that are coming up uh, in a couple of months after the summer you know begins to decline and end happen however this is one case in which i think the culture war for those of us who are you know irritated beyond belief at the fact that uh the in- infection rate is rising of course into almost entirely among those who are unvaccinated that uh, the the irritation that they won't get vaccinated, that, that rates are rising, and that this is going to impose new hardships on us as people who did get vaccinated and want everything to fully reopen and want to continue to live, uh, you know, our lives as normally as possible. Um, that uh, the culture war is now going to turn in our favor because. Uh, the unvaccinated are now unvaccinated by choice unless there's unless they're children under 12 and um basically the cultural leaders of the united states the sort of liberal cultural leaders who have made fauci and cuomo and all these people heroes um are going to be as angry if not angrier than we are with the unvaccinated to the extent that the unvaccinated are in red states and rural and all of that. And so are they going to want to shut their lives down to help Trumpy people? I say no. I say, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if that's true at all. Okay. Um, what was the logic for uh, stated logic by Andrew Cuomo for shutting down restaurants? It wasn't that these were vectors of transmission. It was that this was all we could do. It's all we can do. And we have to do something. Already, you've seen public health officials like Anthony Fauci and others say that mask mandates in the wintertime, for example, are great, are good, COVID or no. You just have to do it for the good of the the wholesome society that we have to build together on our new public health regime. Um, this is the sort of thing that I can see making a comeback in northeastern states, not as a, not as a, you know a, a punitive response to their populations, but as a preventative response to the populations of red states. Okay, well that so. Play with my scenario though a little bit. Like, seriously, uh, is the New York or the are the or the are the columnists of the New York Times or places like that that believe that Trump voters and the Republican Party and all that are uh, you know represent a clear and present danger to our democracy and are irresponsible and, ca- and cavalier and all of this? Uh, are they going to want to restrict their own behavior? because of them but they'll never they'll never restrict their own behavior we saw that 
you know, for, for the past year and a half. It's not about that. They they they'll continue to do what they want to do. You're talking about politicians here. I'm now. I'm, no, no, I'm talking, there was okay. the birthday party study. There was that fascinating study recently about how birthday parties were tended to be events where people uh, spread the virus, and that there really was no distinction between people who who proclaimed to everybody that they wore masks all the time and socially distanced, and the way that the number of people who were also celebrating birthday parties privately in their homes with people outside of their immediate bubble. Right. There's, okay. I think yeah. there is very much a constituency for the kind of thing Noah is talking about um, um, among the people of the Northeast states. When you see, whenever uh, on Twitter any uh, Democratic governor talks about announces like the the the, the recent infection rates, um, if there's ever an uptick or if hospitalizations are everything. All the comments below are do something. You've got why are we still why are we open? We open too soon. You open too soon. There are still people clamoring for us to go back to where we were. And this is now they now they have something to 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 you know make a case on. But it's going to be interesting in the fall, as John, as you alluded to about schools, because the CDC just this past week came out with recommendations that were quite firm in saying schools should be reopened, even if you can't keep distancing. And if you're vaccinated, if you're a teacher or a high school or middle school student that's fully vaccinated, you shouldn't even have to wear a mask indoors. It was very clear that virtual learning was a disaster and that in-person learning was a priority, even if all the different mitigation efforts couldn't be met. So that's going to that that's the that's the message of the appeal to science folks are going to have to contend with if they do want to backpedal and and go back into more lockdown modes in the fall. Okay, well, so here's the other question. Um, We're talking about states where the COVID rate was low, period, for most of the pandemic, and now uh, it's going up. Does this mean that the fact that uh, people uh, resisted vaccination or thought that this wasn't a crisis because they didn't really see it in their own communities are now going to see it in their own communities and change their tunes and quietly go get vaccinated uh, just, you know, as a prophylactic measure because they're seeing that people are sick or they're hearing that people are sick or people in their church got sick or whatever, that that's actually going to change their behavior, even if I don't think it'll change their behavior in the sense that there will be a kind of public reckoning with, you know, saying, oh, I guess we were wrong. We need to get vaccinated. They'll just they'll just go to the CVS or go to the local wherever you can get your vaccination, get it done and not not, you know, make no big deal about it because they don't want to offend their unvaccinated or anti-vax neighbors or stuff like that. It is very possible. And I I hope that's not a wish fathering the thought. And yet, um, we're seeing the outlines of an argument that I think is going to, if the status quo prevails into 2023, is going to define the Republican Party's primary race for president in 2024. And I'm writing a little bit about this today, which began with Christy Nome, South Dakota governor, who issued a veiled shot across the bow of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, alleging essentially that he's been this anti-lockdown champion and he wants to uh, you know, revise history to exclude his support for lockdowns, which by the way, only amounted to providing deference to local officials to do what they wanted to do. That she said is, you know, beyond the pale because I didn't support lockdowns whatsoever. Now there's a lot of good substantive arguments against this sort of line that she's trying to take. Most of which is that Florida had far better outcomes, the economic and human toll, uh, during the pandemic than South Dakota did. But if the outline among the, in this debate, ideologically, on the right, is that lockdowns in whatever form they took were worse than the disease, it means the right is willing to accept a lot of death in exchange for liberty, economic activity, freedom. And Ron DeSantis could lose that argument. And in most oh, of all, oh, it demonstrates oh. that everybody's already doing what they did in 2016 and taking shots at everybody else who isn't Trump, which is its own conundrum that frustrates me. Right. Um, but along the lockdown yeah. lines, the argument is 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 that the contours of this argument are forming around the idea that absolutism in opposition to lockdown, whatever the conditions that precipitate it, is the position to take. 
Well, there's also that absolutism among some of the stars of right-wing media. I mean, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram on Fox News, kind of really, really poo-pooing the idea that vaccination is safe, constantly bringing up that there's, you know, these vague dangers of vaccination. And I should note, not admitting themselves whether or not they themselves have been vaccinated while spreading fear about vaccination side effects. So the New York Times did a typical sort of anti-Fox News hit piece on the on, on the cover of the newspaper this morning, but there's there's real concern to be had if John, if you're right that, you know, maybe people will just go quietly get vaccinated, if if their main news source is, is constantly raising doubts in their minds about the safety of the vaccine, that might not be quite as possible. Not that people are stupid sheep and listen to everything Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram say, but there is a kind of background noise level effect to some of this uh, discussion on Fox News. Um- I'm sorry to say I'm inclined to think that it's not going to change many minds because I I think the way things are, if evidence um, were that persuasive, we wouldn't be where we are already. Um, I think every twist and turn in this story can somehow be shaped into your political um, argument. So if there's so people see a rise in cases, if if the if the anti-vaxxers see a rise in cases, their argument is. Why is this? I, you you told us that we had this thing beaten. You, you I, I thought we hit uh, you know in excess of of fifty percent of the population having a shot, um, and now we're, and now this is still on the rise. So we, you you all got vaccinated for nothing. I mean that that is the problem. It is very hard to sort through a lot of this stuff rationally because there there are there are two possible lines of argument one of which is code is very dangerous it killed a lot of people you get vaccinated uh there we 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 achieve herd immunity to the extent that we can we try to outrace the variants so they don't uh, elude the vaccine and then we're uh, we're home free and uh, and we had this terrible period the period can be over and the other is that what happened didn't really happen that uh, it wasn't as bad. That a lot of deaths have been imputed to COVID that weren't COVID. These are the these are the theories that the vaccinations are are untested and uh, could have these terrible I am legend like side effects. Where you know in the movie w- with Will Smith, it begins with everybody uh, there being a new vaccination for cancer, and everybody gets it, and then everybody is turned into a, zo- a flesh eating zombie. Uh, Three three years later or ten years later or something like that, which seems to be the logic of the anti-vaxxer is we don't know what the consequences are going to be, so I don't I don't want to take it. Um, so you either say a it wasn't as bad as we think, and b the treatment for that which wasn't as bad as we think will be worse than the disease. And um, I. I guess you can believe that. Uh, uh, it seems like a very, I, I, I just keep thinking, this is just, it seems like a very weird thing to create a political difference about, except that people were justifiably offended by the way people talked about Republican states during COVID. So everybody got their back up. And, you know, Ron, and despite Christy Noem now basically saying Ron DeSantis is a liberal, Ron DeSantis is a liberal pro-vaxxer, you know, Andrew Cuomo wannabe. Um, the whole point was that Ron DeSantis was the villain of, 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 of COVID because people were allowed to go to the beaches in Florida. Um, and uh, I think Noah's right that... Uh, you know, I mean, we have a long way to go before people start running for it. It's two years until the summer of 2003. Theoretically, there'll be a lot of other issues that arise before, after COVID uh, that people are going to have to deal with. Um, but, it, it, you know, I, I don't even know where to go with with this. I mean, I, I don't know how how to have a conversation about this except to say, yes, I understand why conservatives are offended and irritated and and don't like Fauci and don't like the heavy hand of government and don't like the idea that governors took on these emergency powers and did you know theoret you know uh, unconstitutional things in some ways uh that went beyond the scope of what government should do all of that 
is something that I accept and that I've been saying since we started this daily podcast. But there is a disease out there. It's more than 600,000 deaths have been imputed to it. And as I keep thinking, when we went back to when this all started back in March 2020, our nightmare number, the real nightmare number was 200,000. That was the nightmare like I know, I know there was the two million number that scared Trump and got him to agree to the two weeks of you know two weeks to bend the curve thing back in March or April or whenever that was. But um, but two hundred thousand was like oh my god, like this is t-. and and we hit it. Even if you think that the COVID numbers are wildly overstated, we hit it and surpassed it. And yet now we're pretending, or a lot of people are pretending that it didn't happen. Well, and it, it, I'm sorry, but Christy Nome can just take a seat because she is she is the governor of a state with fewer than a million people, fairly homogenous rural population. Uh, you know, DeSantis is a governor of a very uh, a, a very different state, but has 21 million people. So I do the, the kind of bickering and infighting is to be expected, but it's also she has it's, it's a fair amount of hubris for her to say that. And I said that as someone who actually admired her at points during the uh, pandemic for the way she sort of pushed back a little bit and, and promoted freedom and whatnot and, and rationality. It's kind of disappointing to see this happening now, but really. Um, there's one more element to the uh, political aspect of this um, that that will be interesting to see how that plays out. And that's what the Biden administration does um, in response to rising numbers. Um, it is um, uh, sort of darkly, tragically comic that um, the Biden administration set up July 4th as this sort of big day when we would sort of have this thing beaten, um, you know, uh, based on, you know, X, X number of months of his leadership. And then by July 4th, we would we would be truly be independent of the virus. And that's kind of actually when things numbers started rising again, uh, officially. And, uh, you know, uh, Biden has kind of reversed somewhat course on his initial um, masks everywhere. The CDC uh, uh, changed its guidance about about those who were vaccinated indoors. Um, They've just barely gotten out the door on on that new um, path. And now what are they going to say? I mean, there's sort of some evidence to support John's point there, um, because I think it was back in March, maybe April, when um, there was this big spike in Michigan, right? And the Biden administration, the CDC, CDC director, Anthony Fauci, the White House itself put a ton of pressure on Gretchen Whitmer to reimpose lockdown. And she very publicly and uh, courageously, in my view, resisted that pressure. Uh, And it was the right thing to do because virus receded uh, based on the mitigation measures that were already in place. Um, so it proved to be the right the, the right tactic, and perhaps that's what happens again, and perhaps we see blue state governors resist it because the economic toll will be worse than the human toll, what have you. But, you know, I don't think we would ever have to had to have seen that fight if the polity wasn't Michigan's, but, say, New York's or California's. Um, you know, we know that the liberal mind is much more amenable to these kind of measures um, than a, a more conservative, more rural state, even though Michigan's pretty much a blue state still, you know, it's about as, it's about as blue, I guess, as New Jersey is, but nevertheless, you know, you can, I can't imagine that you would see that in a, in a place with such a heavy democratic constituency and a democratic governor. I look, I I mean, you know, one of the things that irritates me is that we, we talk this way, we're very ambiguous about this. And then we get these emails saying you, you support lockdown and you're a monster and, you know, lockdown, you know, uh, don't start with me. Like uh, everybody I know, it, it, people in my family, all of that, people suffered very greatly during lockdown. Uh, teenager, school kit, like the social isolation that was caused by all of this uh, was a nightmare for a lot of us. And I, you know, and so um, uh, I think we uh, were very skeptical of uh, a, a lot of this and, and, and properly so. Um, and the last thing anybody wants is lockdown, which is why the idea that you can simultaneously say that lockdown is dangerous and threatening and awful for for Americans, um, and that uh, the people who resist doing the one thing that we know without any question can prevent 
anyone from arguing that we need to lock down again, that it is noble to resist the imprecations of the liberal media that you should, or not the imprecations, but the, the demands of the, that you should get vaccinated. Um, if you hate lockdowns, tell everybody you know to get vaccinated. Like that, that is, that is, in, you know, as an instrumental matter or as a simple policy matter, that is the only way that we can make sure this doesn't happen to us again. But we are projecting out, you know, case rates on a straight line projection, which are always inherently fallacious. Right. Anybody who ever comes out in favor of a lockdown based on our current case rates, much less hospitalization and death rates, is a lunatic and should be uh, treated as though they were a lunatic. We're talking about the idea that this this pace continues into this month, into next month, and in September, and we start seeing tens of thousands of cases per day, which we're not. Well, we have tens of thousands of cases well, okay, per day now. Cases. Like, no, you no, no, or, or fifty or a hundred. I mean, the whole point here is. Uh, but again, I want to get back to this point, which is that, you know, like New York State, which was the worst hit. Obviously, I think between uh, people who have had COVID and people who have been vaccinated from COVID. We're approaching herd immunity numbers in New York State. I think it would be very hard for Andrew Cuomo to re-lock down based on that, not to mention his own political future and all of that. But um, this is where the rubber meets the road, interestingly, which is that a lot of this stuff was effectively national. And uh, what happens when the issue is Mississippi really needs to lock down because Mississippi you know, uh, spiking in cases and the ICUs are filling up and all of that stuff, Um, but not New York. Mississippi needs to then lock down in order to keep it from spreading to keeping the Delta variant or breakthroughs of the variant from spreading to New York. New York locked down in order to keep the spread of of, of, of the original COVID from other states. You know, I mean, it's like, there's supposed to be some reciprocal obligations living in a giant country. And, uh, you know, if Mississippi is not going to do that for me and never had to lock down for me, like I, you know, I'm, I'm saying Mississippi shouldn't lock down. I'm just saying people in Mississippi should get vaccinated so that no one has to lock down. And, and, and yeah. And the logic of saying I hate lockdowns and I hate vaccination remains the most baffling part of this entire conversation. The imposition, and we talked about this last week when no when you were away, is lying about how it would be terrible for the federal government to come knock on your door with a needle and say, look, we'll just, if you're willing to agree, we'll just, you know, we'll give you the vaccination right here. You don't have to leave your house. Nothing has to happen. We'll just do it. And then we'll come back in two weeks and do the second round. It'll be great is some act of, you know, like Orwellian totalitarianism. Well, but this is where the, uh, this is where I'm sorry, I'm going to go on a mini rant about some of the right-wing media messaging that's going on now, because I think it is actively harmful that they're like, oh, we're just asking questions about the vaccines, but that's not really what they're doing. They are relentlessly encouraging people to to constantly hold that contradictory set of uh, uh ideas in their minds, as you say, John, that vaccination is is bad and coercive and the government's trying to pull one over on you by demanding that you get it, and that lockdowns are also coercive. So that that there's a way to, to hold that contradiction in your mind if the show that you watch every day of the week is constantly encouraging you to hold that view. Not that, again, I'm not saying people are stupid, but there is a sort of feedback mechanism in effect here, feedback loop among the groups that we really most want to reach for vaccination right now and what they on a regular basis are hearing from people they admire on television. Uh, I mean, I don't know what to say. It's, it, I, 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 we remain in this very peculiar, the culture war has taken very peculiar turns. The idea that this should be the emblematic fight, as Noah, you suggest, we, th- this is shaping up to be a, a kind of emblematic fight, assuming it's not superseded by other stuff, in terms of who is chosen as the next leader of the Republican Party. 
who, by the way, will be Donald Trump. I mean, this whole thing, the whole conversation is ridiculous. Oh, yeah, like you said, Christy Noem is firing at Ron DeSantis. If Trump wants to be the nominee in 2024, he is going to be the nominee in 2024. There is nothing that is going to stand in his way every time they do these, you know, straw whatever, he's 70-30 in lead, you know. Right, and that's what's most frustrating about this is to see the outlines of 2016 again in which everybody's competing to be the not Trump candidate and fighting with each other over who's going to take the not Trump lane. Um, that didn't work last time. It's not going to work this time to see Christy Nome going after number two, you know, suggests we're on a, a trajectory that we know, we know where it ends and it's not in a great place. I mean, it's not even, they're trying to be the not Trump. They're trying to be the Trump. So here's the thing. If everyone's Trump and then Trump runs, there's literally no reason, aside from everything else, which is that Republicans seem to like Trump, not to pick Trump. I mean, if you're, if it's Trump and then a whole bunch of Trump wannabes, then, you know, it's like if you could see the Beatles or you could go see Beatlemania, would you, wouldn't you go see the Beatles? It doesn't just, I'm not sure this is the where it's going to go. You know, again, we're talking about a straight same well, thing. Well, no, you wouldn't go see Beatlemania because the cost of the ticket is too high to see the Beatles. So some candidate has to make the case that the ticket price for Donald Trump presidency part two is just too exorbitant. Right. It's right. like the Democrats had this problem with Clinton, right? They were constantly in search of a Clinton without the zipper problem candidate, right? They never really found one, but that yeah. was always the sort of unicorn yeah. they were seeking in the 90s. I mean, basically the light beer slogan, right, from the 90s or the 80s, whatever, was it everything you always wanted in a beer but less. I don't like beer, but I never understood why that was a good slogan. Like, if you want something, if you want beer, why would you want less? If you want Trump, why would you want less? Great taste, less filling. Right. Oh, okay. But but that, but that great taste, less that filling, I understand. Great taste, and less tweeting in this case. Right. There you no, go. But, yeah, yeah, but no, but everything you always wanted a beer but less is like, why would I want that? That's like, I'm going to give you a beer, but it's not as good as the other beer you could buy. Well, there are you know? there are conservatives okay. who want that. There are conservatives who want everything sure. about Trump, but less of all of it. Yeah, there are 30% of them. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, according to CPAC, anybody who goes there is looking for ideological combat. Yeah, but but there are, okay. but, but there are the, the, you know, this enormous number of, of conservatives who want everything in Trump, but more. Right. So I'm just saying, I, I don't want to sort of, you know, belabor this point, but, um, but uh, I think Noah, you're, Noah's in a very interesting zone to say that there, that, that, that there appears to be an effort to set up a struggle between who is most like Trump, but just isn't as good as Trump, if you like Trump. I mean, it's sort of like the the J.D. Vance versus Josh Mandel fight in Ohio, you know, uh, which is who's going to be more vulgar and aggressive and, you know, uh, and provocative in fighting the culture war. Uh, and persecuted. And, yeah. Neither one of the those guys, is it, a nat- is it natural to them? That's what's so weird about this, like, is that the whole point about Trump and about modern politics is this authenticity issue. And Trump is authentically Trump, and everybody else who isn't Trump, with some exceptions, I mean, there are, there are people who are, who are like Trump, uh, who, you know, sort of like, but I mean, you know, again, it's like, they're not really Trump. So then you have to, like, be fake Trump. And I guess in, in a race where there is no possible Trump, meaning oh, the Ohio Republican Senate nomination in 2022, uh, you're you're trying to appeal to those people. But if you really, honest to God, get a choice between Trump and and anybody else, and you want Trump, why would you choose anybody else? Why would anybody, if Trump runs, this is the serious thing, with the exception of standing around waiting for him to die? before he before before the convention or to get indicted or to kill somebody or something like that why would anybody run if he decides to run what do you what do you what, what are you offering 
I mean, unless you're willing to say he cannot win. He cannot win. He lost this election, and it's only going to be wor- – the high watermark was the vote that he got in 2020. He can't win uh, because the Democrats can get 85 million votes, and we can get 75 million votes, and we're going to lose. And he's a great man. He was great. He was fantastic. He can't win. He's too unappealing to the people who have to make – or are going to make the decision about who wins. And if you're not willing to say that, how on earth can you – you know, ha- make any kind of claim to the nomination. Well, I mean, some earnest, you know, uh, anti-populist um, um, uh, conservative will run because it's the right thing to do because they don't they 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 they, they don't want to see the party entirely ceded to yeah. to Trumpism. And some very dishonest anti-populist anti-Trump candidate will run with the exclusive design of generating a lot of uh, publicity for themselves and their organization and getting a lot of campaign contributions from uh, centrist and left-wing voters uh, with no intention of winning the nomination, but only of hobbling the the anti-Trump line. Obviously people will run because, you know, it won't be like, you know, Gore clearing the field and then Bill Bradley saying, all right, I'll, I'll run. Somebody's got to run against them. I'll do he it. He had a lot of support in my high school. Yeah. No, it's like, all right, I'll do it. What the hell? What's it going to kill me? You know, it's like that. There'll be people who do that. But, you know, it's not. There's something very half-hearted. Yeah. So someone will run to get campaign contributions. I From whom? Like, I don't even know what that is. So if Larry Hogan runs... Yeah, I, I whatever. Anyway, I mean, we're having this classic, you know, why are we even talking about this moment? But uh, because this is where the political argument, you know, takes us. And he made this speech on Saturday. Uh, I didn't watch it. Anybody watch it? I didn't watch Trump. I watched okay. a little bit of it. Yeah, I, I just I watched enough to hear him, you know, to go over the um, how the election was stolen. Um, but Bill Barr is too nice a guy. That's that's the problem, um, you know. Uh, then I heard I heard I heard him yeah. talk at length about uh, the aircraft carrier that was that was a disgrace that that, uh-huh. that he was gonna that he knew how to fix up that the money was being wasted on. I don't know. Yeah, oh, he had a, that big thing about steam, right? Remember S- steam, yeah. steam, steam, and electric. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's I the only it. saving grace is that he's mm-hmm. he's so myopically focused on twenty twenty that he gives his opponents an opportunity to say, you know, we need to move forward without saying we need to move forward. Mm -hmm. Hey guys, once again, the big economic debate in America is this question of the uh, coming inflation. Uh, We've been talking about it a lot. And there's another one of these surveys of, you know, 29 academic economists, all of whom say we're in for a couple of years of inflation that we're seeing core inflation numbers go up in terms of consumer goods and all of that. And, uh, and this is now, uh, the conventional wisdom. And as I keep telling you, if you want to a perspective, uh, that goes against the conventional wisdom and looks hard at political and economic history and even recent history and says, you know, the trends I'm seeing here, particularly with the bond market portend not long-term inflation, but long-term deflation and a generation of economic stagnation that follows uh, Japan's pattern uh, after the 1980s. Uh, and therefore, you need to plan your investing strategy and your retirement strategy and all of that wisely. You want to look to our friends at the Bonson Group David Bonson manages a bi-coastal firm with $3 billion uh, that he invests for his people, and he produces these documents, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com, one daily, one weekly, uh, that go through uh, economic data and and, uh, policy questions of the day and of the week, uh, and uh, illuminates them uh, in in a sprightly uh, interesting, compact, and very valuable way. So go to dividendcafe.com, sign up 
for the DC Today and DividendCafe.com from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial management and services industry. Um, Cuba. Very interesting footage out of Cuba. Tens of thousands of people uh, complaining about Cuba's supposedly wondrous healthcare system and the freedoms that are being denied in a, a rising economic crisis. And, of course, the president of Cuba was the fir- first time I ever saw or heard of this guy, whoever it is now, saying that, you know, the United States is somehow uh, create, you know, is, is, is fostering this uh, rebellion in Cuba that they're going to have to uh, crush because, you know, the Biden people following along the Obama people really, really, really are very serious about fighting the Cold War in Cuba. That's why Obama, you know, net, you know, normalized relations with Cuba to some extent, lifted all the travel restrictions and the embargo and Biden supposedly what we heard was that Biden kind of wants to follow suit or to build on that in some way delicately without doing things that will push the once again the Cuban community that that they suckered themselves into believing had moved to the left on these issues uh and of course was handed the 2016 and 2020 elections in Florida to Trump can I just point out that the, the, my, the myopic coverage that the New York Times gave this is going to give you a sense of how the kind of liberal mainstream is going to approach what's happening in Cuba. They made it all about economics. The lead of the piece and also the, the, the post that went out on Twitter uh, promoting the article said freedom and other anti-government slogans were, were shouted by Cuban people in the yeah. street. They were carrying no mention of the fact that a lot of these protesters were carrying American flags that some some Cuban cops actually joined the protesters. No no sense that this was a sort of pro-democracy movement as much as it is a complaint about how their own government is failing to give them basic services such as food and medicine. So that is going to be the angle. It was also a story that was buried like a couple pages in the paper. That I think is going to, they do not want to emphasize the fact that this is actually a fight for freedom and a, and a truly disaffected population finally rising up in the streets. Well, you know, freedom is an anti-government slogan. In Cuba. So I am a little, you know, I'm reluctant to join the pile on there. Two thoughts on this, one very parochial and political, and the second a little bit more internationalist. The first is um, the Biden administration's initial response to this, as framed by the Washington Post correctly, um, was a disgrace. Uh, Initially, you had uh, Marco Rubio come out on Twitter and say, now that those, you know, defend Cuba, the competent Cuban Communist Party cannot feed or protect the people. Now those in the military must defend the people, not the Communist Party, to which Julie Chung, the assistant secretary for the State Department's Bureau of uh, Western Hemisphere uh, Affairs, tweeted, we are deeply concerned about calls for combat in Cuba. We stand by the Cuban people's right for peaceful assembly. We call for calm and condemn any violence. The Washington Post noted that this was correctly a response to a U.S. lawmaker, not a response to the Cuban government, which uh, the new president had said, we will we will fight in the streets, very plainly making a threat there. And then you had a lot of cleanup. Jake Sullivan said, oh, no, the U.S. supports freedom, of, quoting Julie Chung said, no, the U.S. supports freedom of expression and assembly across Cuba. We strongly condemn any violence targeting peaceful protesters. And then Joe Biden released a fairly good statement condemning the Cuban government today. But the initial response, the reflexive response uh, from the State Department is one of the reasons why conservatives have had such a big problem with the State Department for decades and decades and decades, um, which is that their reflex is to say, no, 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 We, we can't do anything about this. Which leads to my second point, which is that the freedom agenda, the lack of a freedom agenda on the part of the United States, rejected by voters in 06 and 08 rather definitively, has produced something less than satisfactory. In Venezuela, in Iran twice, in Hong Kong, and now in Cuba, the outcomes that our hands-off approach has taken, with varying degrees depending on the administration, has not produced outcomes that I think anybody would be satisfied with. So it's time now for us to reassess whether that is the strategy, the geopolitical strategy that we really want to pursue. Uh, that, that, I mean, that is the, the, the depressing thing about, you know, seeing this um, uprising in Cuba um, is that uh, over the past dozen years, we've seen so many similar movements in so many repressive countries. 
And I've been from the from the Arab Spring to the, the, the Green Movement in Iran to mass demonstrations in Russia, um, to Hong Kong, Venezuela. Ever. And I, I, with the I think the sole exception of Tunisia, um, none of them resulted in the kind of transformation or not that Tunisia is a sterling success, but but it but it set it on the road to something different. Um, the, none of them have resulted in the kind of thing that we would like to see out of this, and and I agree with them. I think that is that is certainly at least partly due to um, our in, inability to um, take advantage of these moments and unapologetically get on the right side. The, the the Biden State Department response to me is very reminiscent of the Obama administration's response to the Green Movement in in, in Iran in two thousand nine when when that arose. Um, uh, and and the, the the people were being uh, slaughtered in the streets by the by the Iranian uh, Basij, and uh, Obama's basic attitude was, we want to see peace. We we respect the people protesters' right to protest, but you know uh, the election was decided. It was it was in response to a, a, a corrupt uh, a re-election of of Ahmadinejad, and. Uh, uh, you know, so uh, the, the 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 president is the, of of Iran is the president of Iran, and you know the people have spoken. The world is watching, and that's it. And also, they were obviously involved in trying to get to get the the nuclear deal going. Look, I, I think- to monopolize. I'm sorry, John, but one brief point is the, the the story of the last decade when these movements erupt is that you strike while the iron is hot. You move immediately when everybody's in the streets. Apply maximum pressure. Fund the dissent. Support the dissent broadcast into these countries, anger the regimes, do whatever you can when the moment is upon you, because it doesn't last. And when the momentum is gone, so too is the opportunity for regime change. I mean, you know, you're making, uh, you guys are making a kind of instrumental point, which is fine. I mean, and, and, and I think there's no reason not to, not to try it. I would just make a kind of basic moral point, which is that it doesn't matter whether, the pro it doesn't matter the the response whether the protests succeed or not it is unlikely history tells us that the protests will lead to large scale change you know which doesn't bubble up from below or does very very infrequently and with often complicated results that you don't really like that's not really why you stand up and say, we believe in freedom. We support the brave people who are willing to put their lives on the line for freedom. You do it not to be sentimental, but because it's the right thing to do. And it is of no help to you to be more circumspect. You get nothing out of being circumspect. You might as well just say what we all think, which is, wow, those people are brave and it's amazing. And they they want what we have and they should have it and it's terrible that they don't and we should we this should remind us among other things to be grateful for what we have because all we ever do here is sit here and complain about how terrible this country is and you can all drop dead because there are there are people in Cuba walking around with the flag and they're not standing around saying I don't know this doesn't seem to be a very just country that has you know has okay, has but- uh, has has bad schools that don't let enough African Americans into the magnets you know like that. So th- this is an interesting point because actually next week, July 18th, I think through the 24th, is what has traditionally been known as Captive Nations Week. And this is when usually American presidents issue statements to this effect, right? Like what are the nations where people are still living under conditions that suppress freedom and, and where they are living under authoritarian regimes? It's, it's usually an opportunity to give a kind of, you know, a statement that very few people are going to argue with unless you're a diehard communist or socialist. And Biden, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, the Biden administration is thinking of getting rid of the whole captive nations uh, branding and instead talking about free and open societies week, which is fairly ironic given what's going on in Cuba right now and their response to it. So I would say keep an eye on whether they try to rebrand captive nations as actually about free and open societies and what his statement will say to that effect. You know, we should we should talk we should dig into this a little bit because the the phrase captive nations had a very specific meaning before the end of the Cold War. It that referred specifically to three countries, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, all of which had been independent countries that were taken over by the Soviet Union and whose dominion over them 
we never accepted. We did not accept that the Soviet Union had sovereignty in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. We recognized a government in exile. We recognized, oddly enough, they had they the the government in exile had hold of currency from the countries before they were taken over that we accepted as actual international currency, not that anybody had it or used it. They had missions, they had ambassadors, they had all kinds of people. And this lasted for, you know, almost 50 years. And then when the Soviet Union fell, those three countries are successful Western democracies. More to that because, story. Yeah. More to that story. <laughs> it was, I, I would, I would suggest that it's probably um, substantial, a substantial amount of Western support for the independence of the, of the Baltic republics uh, contributed to the efforts by uh, legislatures in the Baltic republics to open up the archives. Their pursuit of the open up the archives from the period in World War II, in which a deal between Hitler and Stalin resulted in these countries becoming captive nations. The the opening of that, the the uh, their ability to read the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, led to the adoption of the Union Treaty and the dissolution of the Soviet Union because it exposed the extent to which the Soviet Union existed only as a result of Adolf Hitler's design. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it shattered the myth of the Union itself and accelerated the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So it wasn't as though this was just a moral posture that had no instrumental application. It, it destroyed the Soviet Union. Look, I knew the I knew the consul, the New York consul for Estonia in the late 1970s, early 1980s. His wife was my sister's piano teacher. Okay? And there seemed to be something fanciful about all this. You know, he was a lovely guy. He was an anti-communist, an anti-communist activist. He did, it, this wasn't his job, really. I mean, he had another job. I don't remember what it was. But he was the, you know, Estonian representative in New York City. And uh, and and that's how I sort of came to know about this. And as I say, you know, nobody really thought the Soviet Union would ever end. And there was going to be no way that these countries were going to be liberated from the Soviet yoke by military action or whatever. Um, but the idea was we just weren't going to stand around and say that the Soviets had dominion over these, over the Baltic republics. And damned if 10 years later... They weren't free. And because we had husbanded this for so long, they didn't turn into Belarus. They didn't turn into Kazakhstan or Tajikistan. They weren't ruled, as Belarus has been for 30 years, by a Stalinist, a totalitarian dictator. And cruised NATO ascension faster than no other Soviet republic has had that success. Exactly. So, so the notion that we should so those cap that is where the so the idea that we're just there to help people keep the flame burning until things change, and then when things change, they have built in their own heads and minds and everything the institutions that will lead to genuine freedom. That's more than enough. It's not that we have to make sure that. You know, the Venezuelan people overthrow the government and take over from Maduro, which is what we wanted and what we would want to see happen. But as we can see, it turns out even there, that was not in the cards. But that's why the rebranding is so, so alarming to me, because it's actually the idea that matters here, not whether we put troops on the ground to assist a rebellion anywhere. And the fact that the Biden administration wants to, in, in this is truly Orwellian, start talking about things in terms of freedom, when the whole point of this message was to remind Americans and the world of our commitment to those who do not have the freedoms that we take for granted. Right. Um, guys, uh, you know, let me talk to you about Bambi, our second advertiser today, because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. 
wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and those HR manager salaries are in cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to provide a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager available by phone, email, or real-time chat. For onboarding to to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary. B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Uh, What else should we... uh, Oh, so Richard Branson went into space. uh, And once again, we see how human competition uh, is one of the most powerful forces on Earth because, of course, he leapt into space because Jeff Bezos, his fellow billionaire obsessed with space, uh, announced that he was going to go into space uh, this month, and so Branson was like, "Ah, oh, I'm going to go first, and Bezos is going to go second, and I guess Elon Musk will go third. And why should we celebrate all this? It's all these billionaires. This is one of the greatest things that has ever happened. We 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 froze the the space program, frozen place was overly bureaucratized. It was overly, you know, it was sort of safety madness and all of this. And beginning ten or fifteen years ago." The privatization of this exploration, which is parallels exactly the late 19th century, rich people sponsoring uh, explorations into the frontiers and into archaeology, you know, into the past and all of that, or into looking for sunken, buried treasures, whatever, however you want to slice it. I mean, if this isn't why we actually want rich people to get rich, to do things that are going to benefit and further the interests of mankind, I, I don't know what is. And, you know, the only the objection that you hear from people like Bernie Sanders is, you know, oh, you know, we're not funding the welfare programs in this country. And yet all these rich people get to go into space just to, you know, make themselves feel better about their their midlife crisis or whatever. I don't even know what the logic is. This is a, a, a fantastic new industry that is being developed around space tourism, which will lead to space accommodations, which will lead to uh, accommodations for businesses so they can develop products in near vacuum conditions and total isolation. The, the industry is proven. It's already got speculative investment in it. And what Congress needs to do along these lines is going to make me sound like a complete crank, but I've written about it in the magazine before. So you have the imprimatur um, is just like the 19th century. They need to start granting speculative rights to companies to explore financially and export um, resources in space. We don't have the technology to do that yet, but we will. And that incentive, private rights in space territory for companies to mine, extract and, and bring back resources will will light a fire under that business and provide all the economic opportunity that will give Bernie Sanders exactly what he wants. <laughs> Look, I, 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 Christine, you wanted to, no, I was just going to say that when, say when I hear, when I hear uh, Bernie Sanders kind of, you know, lambasting billionaires for going into space, he sounds like whoever, do you remember the pigs in space sketch from the Muppet show? This is going to date me, but there was, yeah. this, you know, he sounds, he sounds kind of like that the sour grapes are a kind of, it's almost a parody of what, what you would expect the socialist in America to, to say about this. I agree with Noah, yeah. like that this, this should be seen as an opportunity and actually a way of them spending their wealth. Yeah. Yes, for some ego gratification, clearly, but also with with a larger purpose. Look, um, when Apollo 11 went up and we landed men on the moon and then like two or three years later, you guys are really too young to remember this, but I I remember this. And and then everyone was bored. Everyone got bored. It's like, oh, they're going up again. What are they doing there? And the truth is nobody really knew what they were doing there. And the public lost interest, and except for the you know amazing rescue effort of Apollo thirteen to save itself from destruction, you know the space program kind of piddled out because people were saying, "Well, why aren't we spending that money here?" And you know what? There was kind of a point to that because this was all top down; it was all government funded. It was a giant program. It was a giant industrial policy program to create. Um, a space program, right? Now, granted, this was also Cold War related and all of this. There is nothing but upside here. 
This is private wealth that is doing something uh, that isn't just, you know, buying sports teams and, you know, I don't know, get, you know, giving whatever. It is private wealth pursuing something that is obviously an unimaginably important public end for the future of mankind. And they're doing it for whatever reason they're doing it. Personal glory, solipsism, uh, you know. Government wanting- contracts. For, the, okay. for a decade, yeah. the only vehicle we had to get into orbit right. was, in, was in Russia. Right. All of a sudden, we have private vehicles that now deliver yeah. instruments to the International Space Station, deliver satellites for NASA. Yeah. I mean, you're right, because it's amazing how the entrepreneurs have sort of um, made space sort of sexy again. Uh, Elon Musk as well, um, you know. And yeah. it's, it's funny that throughout this entire, like, decade where um, capitalism has been bashed constantly and this rise in sort of social sentiment, there's been this um, simultaneous sort of counter narrative um, where about sort of entrepreneurs becoming celebrities uh, in, a, in a kind of novel way um, and becoming very influential in the culture and the society. Um, and I think it, it, it's, it's, it's a good sort of um, pushback, even if it's not intended as such, on, right. on the prevailing sort of anti-capitalist narrative. Look, when, when people got all upset because Elon Musk hosted Saturday Night Live, you remember it was like, there were people who said, I don't want to, oh, uh, and you could never really figure out what it was that they were complaining about precisely. I mean, you would think Elon Musk would be very PC for people like this. You know, he creates electric cars. Everybody wants electric cars to reduce the carbon footprint, and it's this and it's that. It really did have this quality, this weird quality of just hostility toward wealth so there's elon musk and you know he's whatever he is he does silly stuff i don't who knows and also is a kind of uh capitalist who has made a lot of money off of the public teat because of pc spending on green technology stuff and subventions from california and the federal government and all that nonetheless like what is he doing with his money like we know what billionaires do as i say they buy they buy football teams they buy art you know they they have 25 different homes and they have yachts and they do this and they do that and these guys who are all strivers right they're all they they didn't come from wealth they created all their wealth entirely by themselves branson the three space guys right branson musk and 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 jeff bezos um, and the idea was, it turns out, they made all this money because what they wanted to do was change the face of humanity and change the nature, change the history of humanity, not just through their business, but through this classic hunger to slip the bonds of what is possible and, you know, and try to do what is what is impossible. Yeah, and this, you know... 80-year-old socialist loser who was writing porn in a newsletter in the 1970s, uh, you know, who, yeah, you're saying like he's like Statler and Waldorf from from the from the Muppets. You know, he Sanders is like, I'm trying to think of the names of the two famous hotels in Moscow. So if he's Statler and Waldorf, he's like, he's like the international and the Moskva, you know, that's, they, that, well, that's who he is. You know what he dislikes? Bernie is himself a millionaire. So we should just remind our listeners of that. What he and his ilk dislike about these guys is that they're enjoying their wealth. I mean, they are, they are in your face about what their success has brought them and the kind of horizon it gives them in terms of what they can envision doing. And yeah, sometimes you get the hyperloop idea from Musk and other silly things here and there, but they can afford to blow all that money on that. You know, I mean, that's actually, and actually I will say in some sense, Trump kind of rode what you were saying, Abe, this idea of the entrepreneur as a kind of larger than life figure. He himself wasn't that kind of entrepreneur, but his brand capitalized on that. That is an extremely important point. And to refine that point slightly further, you know, Josh Barrow submitted a theory that I subscribe to, which is that, <clears throat> yeah, sure, Elon Musk is contributing to the you know popularization and universalization of electric vehicles, which is great for the environment, but he's having a ton of fun doing it. And that's not good. 
environmentalism is supposed to be accompanied by sorrow and contemplative regret over the pain of existence that you're living in. And that's just not his, his brand. So when a, when a billionaire buys a football team and treats it like a giant pile of Coke that him and his friends can just dive into every weekend, that's fine with them. But when they're saving the planet and having a good time doing it, that contramands that, that, that contradicts the entire theory of, of existence for these people, which suits my purposes very nicely. I, I just want to add, there's, there's another figure that who's been so instrument, instrumental in this um, sort of rise of the sexiest sexiness of entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, um, which is Steve Jobs. Um, when he died, it was like, you know, the man who sort of, you know, changed everyone's lives that everyone wanted to claim him. The left wanted to claim yeah. him. The right wanted to it's claim the high him. priest. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, this, this sort of high priest. Yes. So, guys, uh, you know, the unknown came in 2020, changed the workplace forever. Some of us are getting back to the office. Some of us find ourselves in a new normal at home. The future of work has changed. So is the future of seating. And the X chair is at the forefront of home and office seating. Now, X-Chair's newest innovation, LMAX Temperature Regulation, will take your seating comfort to a whole new level. Patent-pending LMAX allows you to experience cooling heat and massage in your lower back. X-Chair's patented dynamic variable, variable lumbar support was already best in class with incredible responsive low back support. Now, with LMAX, your comfort is guaranteed. You won't believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. There has never been a better time to ditch that old no-name office chair and boost your productivity by treating yourself to the joys of the X chair. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call one 844 x chair to save $100 off your order. X chair is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. Uh, so, uh, just to close out very quickly, I've written the first movie review. I think that I, uh, published in seven or eight months for the Washington Free Beacon will be out a little later today about Black Widow, the Marvel movie that came out on Friday. Any, anybody see it? Christine, you saw it? it? And yeah, Noah, I saw it you with saw my it? son. My, okay. One of my sons is a big Marvel, Marvel yeah. kid. So yeah, we saw it. So, uh, it's not very good, right? I mean, he liked it because it's a Marvel movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had i i didn't I didn't think I was going to be seeing like a dysfunctional superhero Walton's episode, but that's yeah. evidently what it is. So, <laughs> yeah, Noah, where were where were you on it? It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it just it is. It exists. Yeah, there and, are and, two really, really, really great performances in it, though. That's that's the key. The rest of it, I think, is totally eh. But there are two great Florence Pugh as Scarlett yeah. Johansson's pseudo sister and David Harbour as her pseudo father, the broken down Russian superhero, super soldier. Uh, he chews the scenery. Florence Pugh is hilarious. She's very, very good. Yeah. Yeah. And the and uh, but it's interesting because the movie you're going to hear. Oh, wow. Cinema's back. It made eighty million dollars in the movies, and it made sixty million dollars on Disney's premium premier channel for a total of one hundred and forty million. Movies are not back. Eighty million is not a good total for Marvel after two years at the theater. Uh, if you're if you want movies to come back to the theaters, uh, this is a very distressing result. Actually, it needed to make one hundred and one hundred twenty million dollars to show that movies are back and people want to go theaters and they haven't broken the habit and it didn't happen. Um, and so, uh, and the, uh, the other problem is that if Marvel is supposed to lead the way to this resuscitation of the movies, when you release a movie that I think is actually disappointing and that will just dis- mostly disappoint people. I mean, maybe not Christine, maybe not your, your son, but he's also grading on a curve because it's not like he would have seen this movie and then fallen in love with Marvel movies because of this. Um, that then lowers, that then means that there will be less excitement for the Marvel movie that's coming out in September and the Marvel movie that's coming out in November and the one that's coming out in December. And then you have the declining franchise problem, which is like what happened to Star Wars. It's what happened to the Fast and Furious franchises and all of that. And then if Marvel starts declining, there is no backbone. There is nothing to support this industry as it as it as it you know hits this second century crisis uh, that it's now in. But um, 
you can watch it at home for 30 bucks. You might as well do it if you have nothing else to do. You will not, if you haven't seen a lot of the other movies, be able to make much sense out of it. And even if you have, you won't be able to make much sense out of it. Yeah, I, I will say I needed the teenager who understood the Marvel Universe timeline to place this movie immediately for me. Otherwise, it would yeah. have taken me a little more time. Yeah, that's why. I mean, I'm, I'm saying this only because maybe I speak for some portion of our listeners here. I most most of them probably. Yeah, yeah, I mean, first off, I don't I don't actually like these movies. I'm I'm firmly with uh, Martin Scorsese on this point about superhero movies. But that aside, I'm I'm I'm, I'm sort of scared to dive in anyway because I feel. That unless I am sort of um, a Marvel scholar, uh, I, I can't. I right. can't. I'm, it's so inaccessible to me. The, the the stories and the and the connections are so impenetrable to me that I don't even bother. That was how it was for me for a very long time. These are my wife's favorite movies, so I just you know started picking them up by osmosis, and I was never very satisfied or you know enthusiastic about them. But then I gradually got into them, and then they do become kind of rather engrossing storylines, like a 20, 20 movie arc actually yeah. that is consistent with itself. I mean, this one being the exception, but if you place it within the timeline in 2016, it makes a lot of sense regardless when, you know, you, yeah. you do get into it, but yeah, I was initially very you know overwhelmed and kind of burdened by that, but some I of them you so, can view in isolation. I tell you, I so disliked superhero movies. I was so skeptical of them and all of that. And then, uh, yeah, kind of, they kind of wore me down. I didn't like the Avengers. I didn't like the second Avengers. I liked the first Iron Man. I didn't like anything else. And then in 2014 or 2015, Guardians of the Galaxy hit. And I thought Guardians of the Galaxy was fantastic. Me too, actually. And that it was unbelievably creative and an entirely different kind of movie that I hadn't ever really seen before. And funny and irreverent and, and, and touching and you know bizarrely great. And then I kind of fell for them. And now I think they are coming. And then... Ant Man is the same. Was like a, a, a really funny, clever heist movie, and I really like the last two Avengers movies, and I love the new Spider Man kid. But I, I think this movie shows where this movie shows real wear and tear that um, that the uh, the the formula and the system are are, are undergoing. Uh, a it's been thirteen years. It's never been anything like this. It's twenty four movies. Uh, Every single one of them has been successful to wildly successful to unprecedentedly successful. There has never been a run like this in the history of motion pictures. And at some point it was bound to fade. There's a whole, there's like seven more movies coming. Uh, uh, there have been these TV shows and all of that. And and the TV shows are very hit and miss. They're, they're beautiful looking and they're beautifully acted and, they make no sense. A lot of them, uh, uh, and and this is really just not not very good. And and um, except that this guy, the guy who runs Marvel, Kevin Feige, and we're gonna I'm gonna end this now because I'm sure everyone is like incredibly bored and would rather hear us talk about politics. But um, he's just a genius at casting. This guy knows how to cast like no one has ever cast. Anything before making Chris Pratt into an action star when he was like this schlub on Parks and Recreation, making him a superstar action star. Chris pulling Chris Hemsworth, this Australian actor, out of nowhere to be Thor. Turns out he is also a genius comic. Saving Robert Downey Jr., who was a drug addicted felon, and putting him back on screen in Iron Man and making him the biggest star in the world. He does this again and again and again. He did he did this with uh, Chadwick Boseman in Black Panther, and now he's done this with Florence Pugh and David Harbour. Florence Pugh in particular, who was like somebody we're going to be seeing for 30 years. Like, this is a star-making performance. Uh, in my piece, I liken it to Sandra Bullock and Speed, if you remember, sort of like Speed, a very weird little movie comes out, and you're like, who is that? <laughs> She's amazing, and then you know she's basically been a star ever since, and that's what that's what happened here. Anyway, so that's where we're we needed we needed to end not on the ad, and so we've now I've talked too much about this. So uh, we'll be back tomorrow, but not Christine. We'll not be back with us tomorrow. Um, I think Eliana Johnson will be with us tomorrow, but we'll we'll have to firm that up. But if uh, but Noah will be back with us now in you know perpetuity. And Abe, and uh, for Noah, Abe, Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.